0: Today, our New Testament lesson is 1 Corinthians 13. I invite you to hear these words of Paul. He says, if I speak in tongues of human beings and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a clinging gong or a clashing cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and everything else, and if I have such complete faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I have and hand over my own body to feel good about what I've done, but I don't have love, I receive no benefit whatsoever. Love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't jealous. It doesn't brag. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaints. It isn't happy with injustice, but it is happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will be brought to an end. As for tongues, they will stop. As for knowledge, it will be brought to an end. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, what is partial will be brought to an end. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child. But now I have become a man, I've put to an end childish things. Now we see a reflection in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Now faith, hope, and love remain. These three things. And the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we come to the final week of this series that I've called Never Enough, as we've talked about guilt and the issues of guilt that we have uh, in our faith journeys and in thinking about Um, our relationship with God and also our relationship with the church. And so this week, I want to ask and frame this question. What would a guilt-free church look like? And when I think about this, I was reflecting, and this almost was the question that caused me to think about this whole series, which is how his guilt led some people to leave church and faith altogether. So in other words, how has a constant feeling of guilt, of not enoughness, led so many people to actually renounce faith, to actually see it as a thing that's not life-giving to them and to walk away from it? Maybe that's people you know in your families, maybe that's people in our culture all around. And my follow-up question to that is, is there a way to hold on to faith, to hold on to church commitment and involvement that is also free from this type of guilt? So that's what we're going to explore today, is what would a guilt-free church look like? So the first thing I want to say to you is that a guilt-free church, according to the way that we have thought about guilt and the way we framed it, a guilt-free church is honest. A guilt-free church is honest. Dave Zoll, in this book that I've been using called Low Anthropology throughout this series, he says this, he says, Church, in my mind, should be the one safe place to bring our shame and shortcomings not the place where extra helpings are doled out. Church should be the one place where I can bring my shame and shortcomings and feel safe about it, not the place where extra helpings of that are doled out. I think about the beginning of Paul's description of love, and many of us have heard this passage read in various places, in various weddings, by that I mean. And, 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 we, and we begin with this description love is patient, love is kind. Love is patient love is kind. In other words, love's passive response, patience, right? Patience or forbearance as sometimes it may have been said in the King James version, right? Patience means not acting in the way that maybe should be. It means holding back back judgment or holding back upon punishment. Love is patient and love is kind, love's active response. God shows patience and kindness to us all of the time. And so when we act with patience and kindness in those two attributes of love, both in its passive response of holding back sometimes and in its active response of seeking the other's good, we are emulating God. And that's what God calls us to do. A guilt-free church that is honest means that you don't have to always put on a happy face when you walk in. It means that we can admit before one another, I don't have it all together. Our culture is built, is built upon covering up all of our frailties, right? I mean, we have things like Like cover-ups for blemishes. I was thinking about makeup commercials and and things like that, right? So we have all sorts of ways to do that. Or ways that we push off and try not to age by injecting things into our faces, right? Or, or, Or all these ways that we cover up our own frailties. And then we try to show our lives through a filter, right? So part of the way that Instagram got popular was the way in which you could add a filter to your pictures to make everything look like. It was always perfect all of the time. And we feel a pressure to do this, to present ourselves, our best foot forward, to present ourselves through a filter all of the time. And friends, church should not be like that, right? Church should not be like that. We should be able to come as we are, right? I'm not talking about how you dress on a particular Sunday. I'm talking about the mentality that we come in with. I think a lot of times we might, and people might, avoid church because they feel like they don't have it all together. They feel like they're not welcome into that space. And what a shame. What a shame. Because church should be the one spot where we can be fully honest. Fully honest, where we don't have to cover up. We don't have to hide who we are with one another. The next thing I would say, then, is that a guilt-free church is free. I'll explain. A guilt-free church is free. I was reading this week, and and C.S. Lewis, in the weight of glory, he says this. He says, If you asked 20 good men today what they thought was the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than just philosophical importance, Lewis says. The negative ideal of an unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love, end quote. So Lewis, talking here probably in the 1930s, 1940s, is saying that so much of Christian teaching around his time would have valued unselfishness as the highest ideal. Is he saying unselfishness is bad? Of course not, right? But what he's saying is that unselfishness as the highest form of virtue has replaced what ancient Christians would have just said is love. Love meaning something that is actively pursuing the good for another, not just not taking on something good for myself. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, Christ has set us free for freedom. Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to the bondage of slavery again. Now, whenever I would read and hear this text, I would never understand it. Christ has set us free for freedom. That seems like the most redundant thing you could say. Sort of like saying a guilt-free church should be free. It, It sounds redundant, but Paul is reminding the church... And he's reminding us to not fall back into thinking that somehow we hold the keys to salvation, that somehow we hold the keys to earning it. We are free from this burden. Now, we're free personally from this burden in a guilt free church. Personally, I think about this way that says, Love doesn't seek its own advantage when Paul writes. Love doesn't seek its own advantage. I think sometimes that is made real in the question when we ask, how do I measure up? How, do, how does my faith compare with the person next to me in the pew or the other person or a Christian that I know? And the first answer that I thought of when I, when I thought of this question, what would a guilt-free church look like? My first answer was this. No one would have to twist your arm to do anything. No one would have to twist your arm to do anything. So often it feels like, I think for people who have been around church or they're burnt out by church, that the pastor's role or leadership's role in the church is getting the few of us to do more, to give more, to be more committed all of the time so that you constantly then feel like you're never enough and then you'll just do even more. And so it's really then a skill of manipulation used by a pastor or by church leadership to get you to constantly be doing more. And faith and church then become just another hamster wheel to run on amongst the many others that you have going on in your life. That sounds not free. It <laughs> sounds like a use of guilt in that way. And when I think about a church that is free, not just you as individuals, but as a church being free, I think it's a church that's kind of free from metrics. Our temptation in the church world is to adopt what we call best practices from the business world and Jesus if I am, okay? So we do this lots I go to conferences and read books and things that basically tell me the same versions of what you read in some corporate management thing with a little bit of Jesus thrown in. And so we have these temptations towards things like effectiveness and success. And then I'm supposed to do time audits and church growth. And there's pressure all associated with all of these things. And friends, these are tools of the marketplace. Can some of them be helpful at times for measuring things? Sure. But they aren't always measuring our effectiveness. How do, how do you measure holiness in the life of a people? How do you measure walking closely to Jesus? It's not always just by the number of butts that are in the seats on a given day. It can't be. It can't just be by the, by the amount of money put in a plate on a given Sunday. Those have been the two ways that we have measured Things throughout the church's history and life, at least in our recent memories of any of us sitting here. And friends, a church that is free is free from just being bound by those as the things that tell us how, quote, successful a church is. Because when we measure only by those things, they make you, as people in the pews, and me, as your leader, constantly feel like we are never enough. Never enough that's not a way of being free. So a guilt-free church is honest. A, a guilt-free church is free. A guilt-free church then is also inclusive. A guilt-free church should be a home for people with needs. Physical needs. Mental needs. Emotional needs. Children and aged. All races. All persuasions. All identities. Everyone is welcome in a guilt-free church love isn't jealous Paul writes it doesn't brag it isn't arrogant it isn't rude it doesn't seek its own advantage it isn't irritable it doesn't keep a record of wrongs Paul in these things where he's saying what love isn't which is often the time where your spouse might nudge you like right by one of them right um And and best of luck not keeping a record of wrongs, right? That's really hard to do. The church at Corinth was having issues with all eight of these things that Paul said that love is not. So Paul is not just giving some, like, generic list of things that love is not. No, what the people at Corinth were struggling with most was they were driven by their exclusivity within the church and their gatekeeping, their desire to keep others out and to make sure make sure that they were maintaining some elite status within the life of their own church. Friends, I would argue that a guilt-free church is constantly asking the question, who is not here and then making space for them? Who is not here and making space for those people? How is this different from day-to-day life? Well, a lot of times for us, life seems exclusive. In fact, too often... Our day-to-day life might feel more like the middle school lunchroom tables than we want it to, right? Where there are in crowds and out crowds, where there are people that fit in and people that do not. And we want to be part of the right group or the right social sphere. And many of us have been shut out at times or deemed not worthy of a certain group or place. And friends, doing church in a way that is inclusive, that is asking who is not here and making room for them is not easy. It is much easier to target a target demographic, to use terms of the market. It is much easier to say this is who our typical person is and we are going to go after that type of person. We are going to create an experience that is just for them and tailor-made for that demographic. But I don't think, I don't think that's the church that Jesus is calling us to be a part of. Paul writes, as he closes this section writing about love, he says, love never fails. Love never fails. You can look at that in two ways, right? Like, love never fails. It it doesn't go wrong. Or you can also look at it as that love endures for all time. That's the point Paul's going to make when he says faith, hope, and love remain these three things. But the greatest is love because we're not going to need faith and hope on the other side when we're with Jesus face to face, which is Paul's, Paul's argument throughout the thing. We don't need faith or hope anymore because we're going to be in his presence, but love will always, always endure. Dave Zoll writes, a church with a low anthropology is a place to bring your failures and your shame. It is a place to lay those things down, to hear about second chances and third chances and fourth chances. It is a place to go and not be turned away no matter how overwhelming your limitations are, by what forms your self-centeredness has expressed itself, or how much damage your doubleness has done. Even more than a place to come together, it is a place to fall apart. And there is always room for a few more faces. Maybe we should put that on the sign. A place to fall apart. That will surely bring them in the door, banging to get in, right? But that is truly what the church in in its best form should be. A place to fall apart when we are honest in our brokenness. Where we can be inclusive to all, recognizing that we all all have our shortcomings and issues it is there that we can love one another fully we all have needs so we desperately each of us need the inclusivity of the church we're the only question that we ask people at the door the only question we should ask them is do you need help that should be the password when you walk in and if you say yes come on in right knock 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 or some form of it Someone stands through on the other side, right? Do you need help? And if they say yes, then we say, come on. Come on in. Friends, that's what we're saying every time I stand at that table, right? When we come and confess sin, I'm saying, what's the password? What's the password? And you say, I confess, like, I can't get to God alone. And then I say, come on down. Neither can I, right? And literally, I say neither can I because you usually tell me, hey, your sin's forgiven too. That's what we're saying to each other. That is a church that embodies inclusivity, at least in how we practice. Now, if only we can embody it in everything that we do. So a guilt-free church is aware of all these shortcomings it has, right? But then a guilt-free church celebrates Even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of where we would say this world is going to hell in a handbasket or whatever phrase you would like to say that implies that, even in the midst of that world, a guilty free church celebrates because it's the love of God that binds them together. In John 17, Jesus prays, I'm in them. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm in them, in y'all. And Father, you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know you sent me and that you have loved them just as you love me. So in other words, we are celebrating that we have communion with God and communion with each other. This is what church is all about. Receiving and experiencing God's love. And sharing that love and growing in it with one another. A celebrating church does not ignore the bad things in your life. It does not pretend that there's not 30,000 people who have just died in Turkey and Syria this week. A guilt-free church does not just try to make, quote, evergreen content that doesn't focus on specific problems in the world that are going on right now or Hardships that are going on in each of our lives and ways that we are all mourning and come grieving. No, we are honest about those things, but because we are set free and are not trying to climb some ladder up to God to reach God and are honest about these shortcomings, we can celebrate together even in the midst of the difficult parts of life. We are, after all, people of resurrection. That's why we gather on Sunday. Because it's the resurrection day. We are always people of resurrection. Always. Death and grieving are never the end for us. Even in the midst of a world that has a lot of it going on, we are always resurrection people. So why in the world would I use 1 Corinthians 13 to describe describe what a guilt-free church would look like? Friends, it's because love is kind of long game work. We grow in love together. We have to learn patience. I know I do. We have to be taught in community how to not keep score of the wrongs that were done against us. The church should be a school where we grow in these habits of love. So a guilt-free church, then, is helping one another grow in love. So often, the way we think about church in our culture is what I need to live my life more effectively. Do you hear all the first-person singular pronouns in what I just said? It's what I need in my life to live it more effectively. Friends, just because that's the general view of our culture which is essentially selfish at all times. I'm going to do what I need. It's my spiritual life. I'm going to take care of myself and take care of me. When we do that, it's like saying that coming to church is just like a little spiritual booster for your life. Like it's like, it's, it's just like getting that nice shot in the arm for the week. Or, But here's the deal. Like you can listen to a podcast and get that. You don't got to be here to understand that. A little reading or a little devotional can give you that. Praying in the woods a little bit can give you that. But there is something, there is something about the body that is gathered together. I think in COVID we missed this part the most. That's why when we have fellowship lunches now, there's like an air of joy and celebration because we remember those things that we missed out on. There is something about the body gathered together, and it's not perfect, are we fully honest as a church? Heck no, right? Are we fully inclusive as to who we, as to who are part of us and the way in which we look? No, we're not there. We're not. And God can still work through this thing called church. Jesus is here. And Jesus is shaping us together if we let him. So, my encouragement to each of you and to us together is this we become the church that we honestly need. Not a replication of the church you grew up in. Not a church that just makes you feel crappy about yourself. But one that is honest, one that is free. One that is inclusive and one that celebrates. Will you do that with me? Will you be a part of becoming the church that we need? Let's pray. Lord, so many of us have experienced manipulative guilt in the church and maybe for some of us we've been able to get through that and to the other side of it and understand that that wasn't always you but Lord we need the forgiveness and love that you offer we need it and we need the community of the church Lord that's why we're here it's why we're not just trying to do this on our own We know that something holy is going on and something that is good and something that is right and that your spirit works in the midst of the people gathered. Lord, we believe that somewhere deep in our beings. It's why we even come out when it rains and is cold and we don't necessarily want to get out of bed that day. It's because you are doing something. Lord, help us. Help us to believe it. Lord, in the face of a culture That wants to tell us how unimportant what we are doing right now is. Or that wants to remind us of all the ways that this institution called church has failed. And Lord, we have. And yet, you still want to work through us. And yet, you still want to meet us in your body and blood each week. You want to meet us in the waters of baptism. You want to speak to us through your word proclaimed. And you want to meet us in the faces of one another. Not just the smiling faces, Lord, but the faces that are downtrodden, that are tear-stained, the faces that don't look just like ours. God, I pray that we would continue to be part of becoming the church you are calling us to be. Knowing that that church that is honest, that is free, that is inclusive, that celebrates, will bring honor to you. And Lord, also will build up, will build up others for your kingdom. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.